Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Jillian. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled, What's with the Toilet Paper? And Other Crisis Communication Lessons with Dr. Cavello. In this episode, we will be flushing out some of the factors at play during the great COVID toilet paper crisis of 2020 and using this humorous but meaningful case study as a way to examine crisis communication theory in action. To this end, we will be speaking with Dr. Cavello on some crisis best practices and what changes you can expect in both senders and receivers during stressful situations. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. There is so much to reflect on from the past few years of responding to a global pandemic, but one of the most bizarre moments of COVID-19 has to be the time when across Canada, the shelves were bare of toilet paper. I thought it was a bit odd as well, and it certainly garnered a lot of attention, and I don't really know why. So to answer this question, we are able to speak to Dr. Cavello. Dr. Vincent Cavello is the founder and director of the Center for Risk Communication and an expert and practitioner on risk, high stress, and crisis communications. He has authored or contributed to more than 150 articles and 20 books and has a passion for teaching the next generation of crisis communicators. We are very happy to have connected with him during an interview recorded in December of 2021. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us on this epic podcast. Dr. Cavallo, why did people rush around toilet paper and what lessons can we glean from this to do with crisis communication? That particular case study also was a case diary for me as well, uh, something that I personally was curious about. I had gone to, this is in the beginning of the pandemic back in March um, of 2020, and I went to the supermarket simply to buy some goods um, and went over to buy some toilet paper. And I noticed something strange, which is that the shelf with the toilet paper was, for all effective purposes, almost empty. And uh, there was someone right in front of me and she grabbed the last rolls on the shelf and put them into her basket. And I asked her very politely, I said, uh, if I could have one. And she said, no, uh, you can't have it. At which point I tried to have a conversation and she rolled her cart away and I had no chance even to use my, my risk or crisis communication skills as a way to persuade, influence. Um, there are three things you try to do in risk communication. You try to build a trust. You try to inform decision-making. You you try to, as best you can, to influence behavior. And I was trying to influence her behavior and she gave me this very direct no. Now, the no, I know, activated my amygdala. Um, there's different parts of the brain that are activated in high-stress situations, fight, freeze, or flight. And uh, so at first I was tempted to, to fight her and grab one of the toilet papers back from her. Really is what I did. I just stood there in a frozen mode of, what could possibly motivate a person to want to take so many rolls of toilet paper and deny that to another person. And then uh, flight was uh, just go to another store and find, see if I can find some toilet paper somewhere else. Um, so I started thinking about this and I did actually a fair amount of research. And it turns out that it's a much more complicated phenomena than I thought. In fact, there were at least nine different variables involved in influencing her perceptions and her behavior. Uh, everything from personal control, scarcity, uh, primal fear, the unfamiliar, the uncertain, social media options to toilet paper, 
What she sees other people are doing, guidance from others, distrust based on poor management or poor communication. And finally, there's only so many things you can worry about in life before you start uh, exceeding what's called your worry budget. And uh, three particularly really interested me. Uh, there's a key principle of risk communication called the magic number three, is that too long a list tends to create discomfort, let alone stress. So, um, well, let me ask you, Grayson, let me ask you, what, what do you think was going on? And then I'll, I'm going to compare what you thought was going on against, again, this research that I did on the behavior. Uh, first of all, did you experience that? Did you, uh, did you run out of toilet paper and run into the, the great scarcity? Unfortunately, I was too mired in COVID response to even shop for toilet papers. But I do think it's a really interesting microcosm of the intersection of, of some disaster myths and then perceptions of, of human behavior in general. I saw this as a resurgent of this myth of, of kind of mass panic. And I, I saw this idea of panic buying in, in the media pop up again and again. But here I am as an emergency manager thanking our lucky stars that finally people are actually taking the preparedness messaging seriously. Well, when you mentioned also the, uh, it's called the myth of panic, the evidence actually indicates that panic is a very rare event, that a number of variables have to be present for true panic. It starts off with, uh, there has to be an immediate and clear source of harm. Uh, you have to perceive there's insufficient time to get away from the harm. Uh, you have to perceive, and these are all perceptions, that there's only a very small or no chance at all of escaping harm. Uh, there has to be no easily identifiable options to what you can do. Uh, quite literally, there's, uh, you just look around and say, there's only, only one option available to me, um, as opposed to other options. There's also a very interesting per perception of first come, first served which means if I don't do something now, uh, there's, it's not gonna be available to me um, as an option to deal with it. And probably the most important, or at least the second most important is the perception of inadequate risk communication, crisis communication. Uh, I'm not getting assistance from anyone, no one's telling me what to do, or there's inconsistent messages, and therefore I panic. Now, to find examples of where all of these variables are present is a very rare circumstances. And, uh, I'm thinking back also, there was recently an analysis of COVID and uh, uh, in one of the interviews with a very senior person, I'm not going to mention names in the US government, uh, that there was withholding of information uh, about COVID because of fear of panic, fear of panic. Uh, I would have hoped that that checklist of nine variables would have been present. Uh, do people really perceive it as first come, first served? Do people really perceive it as there's no identifiable options, for example? So if we if we take panic off the off the chart, then we get involved in with the toilet paper situation uh, in a much more complex psychological event. Uh, one of the factors that influences panic is the perception of lack of control. I don't have any control of the situation. The world is out of control. And now I can get some control back by buying toilet paper. <laughs> Finally, I can do something to protect myself. There's a perception of scarcity out there. Uh, if I don't get the toilet paper now, I may never be able to get toilet paper again. And if I pick out a third one, toilet paper is involved with some primal fears, uh, perceptions of cleanliness, death, all those come sort of welling into your mind. This is a Freudian Jungian sort of a perspective that suddenly grabs, hijacks your brain. You talked about one of the outputs of crisis comms being affecting human behavior. How do you start achieving that? Well, I would argue the first, 
So the first approach is to understand how the brain is operating, what's going on in the brain under conditions of high stress, high concern. Facts don't speak for themselves. Facts are influenced by emotions and perceptions. And uh, we know from the research now, there's over 20 different factors. Uh, the most important uh, is not control, actually. Control is the second most important. The first and most important is trust. Do I trust those who are managing the uh, high concern issue, the high stress issue? It could be as simple as uh, managing uh, concerns about going out in bad weather or a potential of a flood, or it could be perceptions related to something uh, such as toilet paper. Do I trust those that are managing the situation and communicating about the situation? And that was absent at the time of the toilet paper hoarding issue. Control is number two. Uh, can I control my environment? Can I control my own destiny? Are my actions being controlled by others that I don't trust? And trust in turn is based on other factors. So again, we keep getting layers like an onion. We keep peeling back layers. Trust is based on, first of all, the perception of caring. Do I really believe that you care about my welfare? Or do you have other priorities that you're trying to manage or communicate about? It goes back to an Aristotle statement. People want to know that you care before they care what you know. I think I've written that particular statement about 50 times that in high stress situations, people want to know that you care before they care what you know. They want to feel that you uh, are listening to them, that you respect what you hear, that you acknowledge fears uh, as opposed to uh, dismissing them as irrational in the process. And so that's the most important one, uh, communicating, caring, listening, understanding as a way by which to get over the first barrier, which is trust. And then the second barrier uh, that we want to inform people so they can make good decisions. Well, there's another barrier, another wall that's up in front of it. And once again, uh, noted by Aristotle, uh, that when people are stressed, they have difficulty processing information. They can be easily overloaded with too much information. So therefore, we have to keep it what's proverbial short and simple in the process. One of the ways we do that is by sticking to no more than three messages at a time. It's called message mapping, uh, where we... Uh, uh, decide what are the priority items we people we would think people need to know or want to know, and then use the opportunity of communication to share those three messages with layers of mes messages that follow. And the third wall is it's called sometimes the negative dominance wall, negative dominance wall, or the loss aversion wall. It was identified by the Nobel Prize winner uh, Daniel Kahneman, Professor Daniel Kahneman, and that he indicated that in high stress situations we tend to focus more on the negative than the positive. We get more weight to the negative than the positive more focus, more effort, more money. Uh, and in order to offset a negative, we need at least three positives. He came up with a formula, one N equal three P, which means if we want to address a negative, such as the perception of a scarcity of something we feel, feel is essential to our lives, toilet paper, uh, that to overcome that, you need at least three positive messages to overcome the negative, which is the scarcity and to dissuade you from engaging in, in the hoarding behavior. Uh, luckily, we have all these nice little formulas that allow us to organize our thoughts. For example, the first one is the rule of three that gets over the cognitive overload barrier, the trust barrier. People want to know that you care. And to get over the barrier of loss, aversion, negative dominance, you need at least three positive things you can share with people, something they can do in order to uh, get over the fight, freeze, flight phenomena that they're experiencing in their brain. But it fascinated me that uh, all these different things were going on in, in a person's brain uh, that would influence um, the person who was taking away my toilet paper. My brain was activated, fight, freeze, or flight. And I wanted to talk with her about her, how her brain was also activated. I never got a chance to do so.
I remember a, a meeting I was in talking about what we were actually doing in the pandemic. And we arrived at the conclusion that essentially we were fighting for the soul of Western medicine is, is the trust in Western medicine. We've seen multiple examples through, through COVID of trust being the thing that breaks down and alienates people and, and divides people. So I really take that one to heart. We, we've talked a lot about the receiver characteristics and how people receive uh, the information. Let's talk a little bit about the generators of the information. And we talked about uh, panic being a bit of a myth, but I think there's lots of cases and this emerging idea of elite panic or the the leadership panic. Uh, I'm wondering if you have anything to say on that. Part of that elite panic, uh, I mentioned a politician who used, in fact, it's been used quite a few times where individuals say, I withheld information because I didn't want to create panic. And so I would argue the first is there's a lack of information, lack of knowledge about the these many different factors that need to be simultaneously present in order for panic to occur, uh, which means they may be less likely to say the word panic if they're aware of all the variables that need to be present. That might be one thing that I would recommend is, is simply be up to date in terms of our knowledge, uh, recognizing that if all the variables are present, then we have another problem uh, in hand. But nonetheless, the, the odds that those would all be present at the same time are, are very low. The next is adapting to the way the brain of the receiver. Aristotle used a wonderful analogy 2,000 years ago. He said, uh, the person is, is having t- trouble digesting food, and you're the caretaker. Uh, you know they need nutrition in order to stay healthy, but they're not hungry or they can't hold the food down. So therefore you offer up the food in spoonfuls, in small amounts, easily digestible, small amounts of food. I like that analogy because it also applies to information in a high stress situation. And that is quite contrary to the way that many uh, spokespersons or communicators speak. Why? Because we want to flood them with information. We're trying to do an information dump. I'm doing that today with you. I'm doing an information because I, I'm assuming this is not a high stress, high concern situation. I think this is the right channel for that sort of thing. Absolutely. Right. And, and we can do those information dumps, for example. Uh, you can do it at a dinner table. You can do it with friends, for example. In a high stress situation, the brain will rebel. I mentioned before, the amygdala hijacks the frontal lobes of the brain, takes control of the information, starts off with keep it short and simple. Uh, and if, if we have that image in our mind, initially present the information in the shortest and simplest possible way, recognizing we're going to lose something. Uh, when you simplify, you lose information. At the same time, we gain the ability to be able for the information to be processed. The other was the uh, the other thing that uh, sense of failures of communicators is not recognizing that first principle. People want to know that you care before they care what you know. So even if you keep it short and simple, it's unlikely you'll be successful unless you passed over that first hurdle. It might be as simple as just repeating the questions. I, I know that people are having lots of questions about the availability of toilet paper. I know that a lot of questions being addressed about the effectiveness of masks. Uh, that was about 27 words of empathy carry that I would use as a way to begin the conversation. And it has to be authentic too. People actually can read right through a, a lack of, of, of true authentic caring or understanding or listening. Uh, we have a, an incredible faculty facility in our brains to be able to see when someone's faking it. 
And therefore the nonverbals become critically involved, such as uh, eye contact, uh, facial expressions, uh, hands, gestures, posture, uh, all play a very critical role in how we evaluate the spokesperson in terms of caring, let alone competence and honesty and other factors that influence trust. You know, I can see this being a, a pretty delicate balance. The uh, three positives to one negative, you go too far on that and really you're just sugarcoating. Um, so it, it does sound like a really impossible balancing act sometime. What can someone do to prepare themselves? Well, there's a model that is used in the risk crisis and high stress communication literature. It's called APP, um, anticipate, prepare and practice. Um, the anticipate is anticipate the high stress issue before it occurs. Anticipate who will be involved or interested or affected by it and anticipate the questions and concerns that are likely to be generated by the high concern issue. That's the anticipate part. Prepare as you prepare the messages. Uh, keep it short and simple. Start with care and empathy. Balance a negative with three positive. Recognize there's marginal returns to too many positives. And prepare the messenger, the person who delivers the message. Uh, have them do some videotapes of their nonverbal communication. Do they have good eye contact? What are they doing with their hands, their posture, their facial expressions? And most important are the actions. Are the actions supported by the words, supported by the nonverbals? So we have the A part, anticipate issues, stakeholders, questions. We have to prepare part, prepare the messenger, the message, and the means of communication. For example, would I use a videotape? Would I use a fact sheet? Would I use social media? And then the third part, which is the one we often forget, that we practice, practice, practice. You start off by practicing by looking in the mirror. Uh, then you can do simulations. You can do rehearsals. You can do, and uh, the best place I would argue to practice is simply at home. The other is to actually start engaging in this type of practice with others. Uh, the little things in life, you, uh, you go to a restaurant and uh, they forgot to deliver your drinks, you know, whatever, or got the wrong drink. Uh, it's an opportunity, for example, to practice um, practice what you preach. Uh, for example, I'll, I'll do a role play with you, Grayson. Role plays are the best way to practice. I bring your meal over uh, and I forgot your drink or I got the wrong drink. So what do you say to me as a waiter? Again, you have three goals for related to the waiter. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> You want to enhance trust. <laughs> number two, you want to inform decision-making. And number three, you want most importantly to influence their behavior. <laughs> uh, so what would you say? Um, well, well, let's see, start with empathy. Oh my gosh, I know it's so busy. I seem to remember ordering uh, whatever it was. Would you mind switching <laughs> right. out my drink? That's right, there it is. And I really appreciate uh, any effort you can put into this. Something of that nature uh, as, a, as a way by which to practice what you preach. Uh, it really makes a difference. Uh, so you start off very close to home with yourself in a mirror. Then you move on to, let's say, close, those that are close to you. There might be more understanding if they, you might even tell them, I'm going to practice on you. I'm going to practice on you today. I want to practice my communication skills for high stress situations. And can you give me a grade on how effective I was? And then finally, you might say, can you grade me on authenticity? Can you grade me on whether whatever I do did here was authentic, sincere, as opposed to manipulative? And there's this razor's edge sometimes between persuasion, manipulation, influence uh, that we walk on when we're engaged in high stress communication. 
I really like the the whimsical examples we've used the toilet paper and the uh, how not to get your drink spit in and and all that sort of stuff. I'm wondering if you can drive this home with a few examples um, from your work, including yeah. maybe some where you weren't as successful. So uh, actually, I'm going to start off with a failure. It was one of the first major assignments I had. It had to do with a nuclear energy facility. And uh what was important about this facility is that they, uh, it wasn't for making uh, for nuclear power, it was for nuclear medicine, uh, saves lives, a very important sort of uh, use of radiation. Uh, they called me in because they told me that they had a leak, that their reactor uh, was leaking radioactive contaminated water. And they said, uh, we're trying to decide what to do about this because it's a very small leak. We're talking about a hairline crack. There's no environmental harm expected from this. There's no health uh, harm. And therefore, uh, we basically have tabled the issue for a number of years, uh, fixing the hairline crack. It would cost millions and billions of dollars to fix the crack. Uh, and just would want to, wanted your advice on this. And I said, well, radiation is one of those high stress, high concern issues that you want to be, it's sort of, uh, it sort of raises a flag as soon as you talk about radiation, uh, invisible, dreaded, lack of control, unfamiliar as a source of, of possible health effects, et cetera. We're dealing now with people's emotions. Uh, we're dealing with their perceptions. And given that radiation has almost all of the 20 perception factors that increase high stress, I would say fix the crack. I said, from a technical perspective, don't spend millions on the crack. It's not going to make much of a difference in health or environment. From a communication and emotional and a risk communication perspective, fix the crack. And so I was speaking to them as a risk communicator, not as an epidemiologist or a toxicologist. They ignored my advice. The issue, though, came back to bite them, and it bit them in the following way. They had a vote to take about what to do. They had a surplus of money, and they had to decide what to do with the extra money they had. One item on the vote for voting purposes was to fix the hairline crack, this drip, drip, drip into the water. The second was to give the money to the coffee club. Uh, Grayson, uh, try to think like an engineer now. Where would you put the money? Well, I happen to think coffee is pretty darn important, <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it, it's interesting you bring this up. I assume the answer is they went into the, the coffee club, but I think you've hit on something that uh, often impacts our profession is this risk, this idea of doing a risk analysis. And more and more, I see organizational risk matrices include reputation. And I think that would be a good way to, to sort of incorporate talking about risk outside of a, a technicality. So did it go into coffee? It went into coffee. And, and then uh, in today's world, it's very hard to keep information private. Uh, someone spilled the coffee beans, <laughs> proverbially, and uh, it got into the local paper that uh, this facility for nearly 15 years had been dripping radioactive contaminated water into the drinking water system of the community. Uh, and decided, to, rather than fixing this, uh, they decided to put it into their coffee club. Consequences, uh, huge outrage. Uh, Professor Peter Sandman talks about outrage, uh, that risk is made up of the hazard, the results of the risk assessment, the one you mentioned before, the technical analysis, plus emotions. Uh, the subjective evaluation of those fact of those factors, such as trust and perceived benefits, control, familiarity, uh, effects on children, uh, there's 20 in total, and it created outrage. 
The next thing that happened was the politicians abandoned. They saw the writing on the wall uh, that we've lost public support for this facility. There was always some controversy about it to begin with because of radiation and, and the facility was closed down. It was closed down quite literally. We, we lost a, a major asset in our medical research because of a failure to recognize how important are emotions in decision-making. Risk assessment is still important. We need to know what the risk is. It would be lack of due diligence if they didn't do the risk assessment for what the drop, 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 drip, drip, drip was occurring. Then we take that though, that kernel of, of information and have to have these layers and layers of other information that you people use to process whether or not there's a risk present, whether or not they're concerned about the risk, stressed about the risk, or most importantly, outraged enough that they will take action against you or your facility. Now, we've touched on this a little bit, the, the channel or the means of communication. I know that things are, are changing and there's more information out there than ever before. Let's read that as road. Social media is here. It's here to stay. What else is changing in, in the way that we perceive information, maybe socially, culturally, technologically, or even neurologically, and what isn't changing? Uh, loss of trust in medical science, but is broader. Loss of trust in science and loss of trust in experts as a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, when I was a kid, for example, when uh, the doctor would, would come to our house, would say, you know, give the kid X, Y, Z, and I'm, uh, that there was no challenge to it. There was no searching on social media to see what, uh, uh, whether or not aspirin is the best solution, for example, for keeping down a fever, whatever. Uh, they, my parents accepted that authority. Uh, same thing happening with science now in terms of virtually every field of science. Uh, where there's been a huge erosion of trust in science and expertise. Uh, there's even a book uh, by Nicholson called The Death of Expertise. So how do, you, how do you navigate a world where there's a lack of trust in experts? You don't trust your navigator, you don't trust the captain, and you can't see uh, in front of the boat. In fact, you're listening to all the rumors coming from below decks and people are getting information from social media, with which are not the authoritative sources, um, influencers, uh, they were used very effectively, and I believe are still used, being used very effectively uh, in one of the most successful uh, communication campaigns, and that was the one initiated by the uh, World Health Organization, uh, MythBusters. They were noticing that a lot of information was being shared, both misinformation and disinformation. They they, they made a clear distinction between the two. There's misinformation where people misunderstand an issue, and there's disinformation where people are purposely sharing information they know is not correct for some other purposes in mind. And uh, that was spreading like wildfire, both misinformation and disinformation. I, I have a small garden, and, uh, and the person I work with who helps me out with some of the heavy lifting, uh, he said, I know you're working, Dr. Cavello, on COVID issues. Uh, I just read someplace that if I take, if I'm worried about being exposed to COVID, I should take a hairdryer and put it up my nose, put it on high, and I'll kill all the germs. What do you think? <laughs> Actually, that was one of the ones, I believe that uh, eventually WHO listed about 25. There were some strange ones there, um, you know, injecting yourself with bleach. <laughs> You may have heard that one before. So uh, the way to respond to it is to try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I, I started probing, asking questions. Um, can you tell me where you got that information? It's equivalent to intelligence gathering. I, I need intelligence before I can proceed to communicate. I do want to share facts. 
I, I, I want to be respectful. Uh, and to be able to share those facts and be respectful, I have to understand. Uh, and he shared, for example, his, the particular social media uh, chat room that he is involved with. And I said, well, have you brought this up to your doctor? And he said, uh, no. And I said, uh, you know, that might be worthwhile uh, getting that second opinion uh, in medicine. Uh, uh, second opinions are valued. Um, so you might want to get your own doctor to give you a second opinion on this and see, for example, what the doctor will say. Uh, and he said, sure. And the next time I met him, he said, uh, the doctor told me I was the stupidest person in the world. <laughs> Now, I didn't say that. And uh, I, in fact, I was a little embarrassed for the physician who started off with perhaps what I was thinking, but didn't say. I, I tried to do my very best to be caring, understanding, empathic. The technique I was using was questioning. And we really had a really interesting conversation. And uh, so that's the procedure. Um, it's a, and you can practice this on a daily basis. When you eventually get into a really big issue, such as uh, we're dealing now with pandemic, I would argue all that practice uh, will pay off. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Cavello on how to buy toilet paper, not have your drink spit on, and how to prepare yourself. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Grayson. Pleasure. Well, that was a great interview. Um, I had a few takeaways, Grayson, and uh, I'm sure you do too. So one equation that Dr. Covello used is 1n equals 3p. So to overcome one negative sentiment, you need to use three positives to outweigh that negative sentiment. And the other component that Dr. Covello put forward was that we should always start with empathy as communicators. When you're kind of training or practicing, make sure that you yourself are portraying authenticity. So Grayson, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I thought that was really helpful as well. I like these little tools and these equations. And one thing I'd like to know more about are some of the science behind how we communicate in the, the neurology and the way our brain reacts under stress. You know, we talked about some of these concepts in a very general and maybe in a little bit of an unscientific way sometimes, but in, in a way that is helpful for understanding why we do what we do. But I wonder if there's more to learn about brain chemistry under stress or the biology of communication, especially when you think about why communication fails, which is so often listed as, as an error or an issue during response. But clearly the quote of the episode has to be that classic, people need to know that you care before they care what you know. And interestingly, we were not the only people kind of fascinated by this toilet paper conundrum. In fact, several journals and, and scholars have published on the topic. And Jillian, you did a little bit of a lit review on toilet paper. Yeah, so I did do a quick scan of what journal articles might be out there. Um, and so here's just a few things that I found. So first of all, um, there was one article that referred to certain personality traits being more, more likely or most likely to self-report kind of hoarding or panic buying behaviors and specifically toilet paper in this case. Um, and so that personality trait was conscientiousness, which is related to being organized, diligent, um, being a perfectionist and, and being quite prudent. Um, so that's one thing, but I think really the, the points that start to get really interesting for me are some other articles where they were talking about perceived scarcity really being the primary driver. So we're kind of dealing with two things here, so perceived scarcity and intolerance of uncertainty. 
another article which referred to social media being quite influential in, in negative sentiments and anger and frustration um, around the availability of toilet paper. And the reason why social media is kind of pointed at as being um, a source of this anxiety and, and perceived scarcity is because um, some countries didn't actually experience this toilet paper hoarding behavior. Um, so there were differences between um, how people reacted in early days COVID-19. And I think this is super interesting as well, and probably something that's already happening with many people in their EOCs is actually making sure that you're looking at social media and using it as a litmus test in order to see what the community is feeling, what they're thinking about. And, and that's a good way for you to kind of stop this cycle of fear and get in front of it. And as a crisis communicator, you're then making sure that your people uh, are relieved of kind of the anxiety or the sense of, of uh, no control that actually contributes to panic buying and stockpiling. Very interesting. You know, as you were speaking about the different aspects of uh, the toilet paper rush, I, I couldn't help but think that most of them have something to do or have some way to be influenced by crisis communications. You know, you talked about the mm -hmm. receiver characteristics, those individual characteristics, that's your audience. You talked about the, so the social context in which we, we receive the messages, that's the context in which you're communicating. And then, of course, the gap in information or that uncertainty is the whole point of crisis communications is to, is to fill the void. So very well done. Thanks for that quick uh, lit review. Um, <laughs> for today's tool of the trade, I am going to be reviewing Dr. Cavello's message map. He talked quickly about this during the episode, but it's such a useful tool that it deserves a little bit more clarity. So a message map truly is a grid system mapping device. It is a mental model for understanding the topics that you're going to cover and supporting uh, your, your different key messages with evidence or examples. So it looks like a three by three uh, grid at the very top. Um, you list your stakeholder that you're talking about and then either the question or the concern that you're addressing. You decide on three key messages that have to do with the question. So the example uh, in Dr. Cavello's publication is, um, is around smallpox for the general public. Uh, key message number one, smallpox spread slowly compared to measles of the flu. Key message number two, this allows us time to trace the contacts. Key message number three, vaccination is important. And then underneath each of those key messages, there are three reinforcing statements that are mapped out and attached to those messages. So this fits very well with that small bite-sized pieces of information, the talk about three things only. And then the sort of classic saying in crisis comms is uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them about it, and then tell them that you told them about it as a bit of a confirmatory mechanism. So I really like this as a good mental model, a bit of a brain dump. And the whole purpose of this is to address stakeholder concerns uniformly and with one voice. So I'll attach this to our show notes and we'll attach every uh, journal article that Jillian just reviewed in the show notes as well for your reading pleasure. Another great tool was, of course, Dr. Cavello's recent book entitled Communicating Risk, Crisis, and High-Stress Situations and Evidence-Based Strategies in Practice. So please look it up and 
buy it. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Another good uh, tool for the, the toolbox and book for the shelf. That's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Cavello for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of crisis communications as it applies to the toilet paper shortage. If you'd like to find out more about their work, visit centerforcrisiscommunications.com or check out his book. Just before we go, I do want to thank our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation's Well Endowed podcast and the Virtual Open House for Edmonton Public Schools podcast, both of which have put together a quick clip, which I will play for you now. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed podcast. The Well Endowed podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.